Uh, the rest of you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Been in this chapter a little while. Uh, I think uh, we'll finish it today. Well, I take that back. <laughs> we'll get through a few verses today and we may talk some more about it Sunday evening. Let's go ahead and stand and read that text. Matthew chapter 5. And let's begin reading in verse 17. Jesus said this, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to understand what you meant there today. Help us to see, Father, that it's not by works alone that we go to heaven. There's much more involved. Father, I know that your law is important and it shall be fulfilled even in our own lives. I pray today you help us see that. Help us to change our ways. Help us to accomplish your will and purpose for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Hey, Russell, turn me on up here, brother. I need some light. Yeah. Thank you. All right. You know, uh, Jesus had to teach this kind of, we think, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It's still a little bit at the beginning, but he wanted the people to understand some things about works and about attaining salvation. And he addressed the idea that the Pharisees had changed the law Jesus is not contradicting God's Word. He's contradicting the interpretation of God's Word. This doesn't just fall in the fault category of these men and people who were teaching the Jews at this time. This goes way back. This goes way back to Moses. This is uh, God's law given to us through Moses. You all have heard of the law of Moses. And so from that time forward... People would say, what does the law mean? What, what does this particular commandment mean? And so somebody would interpret that and they would help them to understand what God was saying in do not murder, right? Do not steal. And so this carried on and these rabbis, these Pharisees in the time of Jesus were more of quoting old rabbis and past rabbis than they were rewriting the laws themselves. However, that did take place, and they did wrap each commandment with a bunch of other laws to help us to keep that commandment, and that was the problem. Have you noticed how many laws go through our Oklahoma House of Representatives, and how many go then to the Senate, and how many end up landing on the governor's desk for signature. Have you noticed that in the Washington, D.C.? 
how many lawmakers we have and we just keep making laws upon laws upon laws upon laws. Amen? We think that we can legislate or make laws to make people behave. We can make laws to make men moral. We can make laws to change the way society goes. Well, that's the idea here. And Jesus discovers this cancer of laws when he comes to the scene. If we boiled all of the laws that we would ever need, we could get it down to ten, couldn't we? We could get it down to ten laws. That's all we would have to have, but we can't seem to obey those ten, and so we make laws that help us be good. We make laws that help us to be righteous. We make laws that we think will guide us in truth. And we make laws after laws after laws after laws. And all we need is ten laws. So Jesus comes to help the people discover the fallacy of the interpretation of the law of Moses, first of all. And then he helps us to understand what God meant by that. That's what the rest of this chapter 5 is about. In this chapter, you're going to see six more, and I'm not going to cover them today, but you're going to see six examples that Jesus gave of a misinterpretation of what God meant by a command. Six of those have to do primarily with the Ten Commandments or the Law of Moses. Until we come to the last one, which is the sixth one, I want you to look in verse 43 of chapter 5. Verse 43 says, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay. Well, we know in the commandments, the last six commandments have to do with a relationship with men, with each other, and we're to love each other. But nowhere in God's Word does it say to hate your enemy. What happened? The teaching was put out there to try to help us understand what it meant to love my neighbor. So the Jewish leadership from back in the times of David and Solomon and on forward, they made laws to help you know how to love your neighbor. And so they would compare that with loving your neighbor and hating your enemy. And you know what a Jewish person learned as they grew up? That you were to hate everyone that wasn't Jewish. And you were to hate every race and every other religion. You were to hate the people involved in that. And that became a practice of the day. You notice in all of these, Jesus starts out, those six examples, with a phrase similar to this, you have heard it said. But when Jesus spoke about God's Word or was teaching on God's Word, He never said, you have heard it said. He said, it is written. It stands as written. This is what God is saying. Not what men say God is saying. This is what God is saying God is saying. Amen. It is written. So don't be confused by the teachings of men is what Jesus is telling us. He wants to set things straight for us. Verse 43 that I told you to look at, we find that love your neighbor in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. But nowhere, as I said, is it mentioned that we should hate our enemy. 
So as they interpreted these commands of God, these teachers of the law, they began to distort the law by adding, hate your enemy. And so when that started in that sixth example, then that began to carry over into all of the commands of God. There were avenues that you could go around the command and still be righteous, according to men, and not violate that command. Oh, you could get close. You could be close to violating the command, sinning. But if you kept these laws that we tell you, then you can, you'll be okay with God. You'll develop a righteousness of your own. Nancy read that today. Didn't she? Paul said, I don't want a righteousness of my own. I want a righteousness that comes through faith in God. The righteousness of God. You know, Jesus said here, he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And he said this, not one little stroke of a letter, not one little extension of a, of a, a, a word or a, or a letter would pass away until all was fulfilled, until all was accomplished. So we come to you and I. Now, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. He accomplished the fulfillment of the law. He died on the cross to save us from our sin. And we believe that. We accept that sacrifice for us. And we become Christians and we're saved. Does that do away with the law that we should live by? No, it does not. You are still obligated to that law. Why, Brother Clay, why am I obligated to the Old Testament law of God? I'll tell you why. Because it's the mark of a believer. It's the mark of a Christian, a true Christian. You see, Jesus was approaching these people with this thought. I'm going to show you what unrighteous righteousness looks like, and I'm going to compare it to true righteousness. So the Pharisees, Sadducees, that group of religious people were living unrighteously, but calling it righteous. And Jesus brings along the true meaning of the command that brings a person to righteousness. Of course, we all know that the law points us to Jesus. I don't keep the law because I'm going to be saved by it. I find that I couldn't keep it. Therefore, it pointed me, my failure at it pointed me towards the Savior. All right? And in the law and in my inability to live it, I found that it was pointing me to the one who did live it and who could save me. But he says, I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to change it. I didn't come to relax its demands on you. I came to live it, to fulfill it, so that he could be the sacrifice for our sin. But now, it's still a part of the Christian world, the Christian life, in treating each other the way God wants us to be treated. The first four commandments have to do with you and God. Okay? The next six commandments, ten in all, have to do with you and me. So the first four is my relationship with the Father. The last six are my relationship with you. Has God abolished that Old Testament law? No. When you see somebody fulfilling the Ten Commandments, you can guarantee they know Jesus Christ. They're a follower of His. They are marked. 
They're saved. They've been born again. They're following God's prescription for His kingdom people. Amen? All we need is ten laws in this land, but we keep putting laws upon laws upon laws, and this is what Jesus is addressing this morning to these people. Now, when they started to distort these laws by, by making these ways around the laws, but still being able to, to be known or be seen as righteous, I want to point out a couple of things that are, are wrong with that thinking or where these Pharisees were leading that. The first one is this, that obedience is explained, right? This is what Jesus is going to bring out. Two things, obedience uh, relaxed would be a better way to put it, all right? Now... The rabbis were making it possible, as I said a moment ago, to be righteous. They said, well, we, we can't keep these Ten Commandments, but we've got a way of going around them with laws that we can be righteous in our own eyes. And we can uphold and be righteous enough for God to accept us. And so they put thousands upon thousands of regulations on these laws to make the law less demanding. All right, they wanted to make it less demanding, and it says uh, they really did it without even knowing it. Let's take the first one, verse 21. Look at that with me. It says, you, shall, uh, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So the Pharisees were saying, look, if you are angry with someone and you want to kill them and you stab them with a knife, but you miss their heart and you only wound them, then you're not committing murder. You're off the hook. Now how ridiculous is that? But that's what was happening. That's what was being said. So Jesus comes along and He says, nix all of that. Do away with all of that thinking, here's what the command meant. Murder is an extension of anger. So let's go back to the core of murder. You become angry with someone. Jesus says, that is murder. You're liable for court when you become angry with someone. Not that you kill them. All right? See what's happening? The, the Jews are making laws, not even knowing that they're doing it, but they're making laws to distort the command and turn people away from truth. The next one is adultery. Now the Pharisee said, as long as you don't sleep with the woman, you're off the hook. You can go out to dates, you can take her out for dinner, you can buy her gifts, you can spend all your time with her, but as long as you don't have sexual relationship with her, you haven't committed adultery. Now how silly does that sound? What wife would put up with that? But you see, that's what these were happening. That's the things that were taking place here. Jesus says this, it's not that way. It's not that way at all. The Pharisees even went to say, as long as you swear but you don't say it God's name in it, it's okay, brother. Go for it, right? Today we're practicing that even in the church. I hear men all the time saying slang curse words as a Christian man, but it's okay 
because I'm not putting God's name with it. This was the philosophy that the Pharisees were trying to spread and trying to teach. Now, the Pharisees left out the part about loving your neighbor, right? Loving religion. They left out the part about the relationship with God. In the first, uh, or, or in the third example that is here in our chapter that we haven't read, but Jesus uh, talked about divorce. Now I got your attention. He talked about divorce, and he said this, it's permissible if one of them has been unfaithful. Right? That's the only way that divorce in the church is permissible if the, one of the two has been unfaithful. Well, here's what the Pharisees did. They took that further, and they said, look, a man can put his wife out if she's not faithfully cooking him dinner every night. Or a man can put his wife away if she's not faithfully ironing his shirt. Or a man can do this or do that with his wife if she's not fulfilling his every whim. That's what the Pharisees did. Jesus takes it back to the core. Right? He says that's not what God intended. That's not how God intended it. And so we see that how the Pharisees get things out of line. They, they just misconstrue the, the obedience of God. And they, they make it more difficult. Uh, they make it easier to be faithful by just adopting in these new laws that they come up with. In each case, Jesus restores God's requirement back to where it should be. Why? Because the law given by God is, shows us the character of God. It reveals to us God's heart of who He is. True Christians will be godlike in their justice in their mercy, in their faithfulness, in their love for one another. That's why it's a mark of the Christian that somebody you see is obeying the Ten Commandments. Not the Pharisaical law, but God's law. When you see that, you can know that you're dealing with a Christian. So it was man who was contradicting the law. It wasn't Jesus. When Jesus started teaching this, everybody was going, ooh, ah, never heard that before. I always heard this, now Jesus is saying that. He's contradicting what our teachers have told us. Jesus wasn't contradicting. Jesus was revealing truth. Men were contradicting the law that God had given. Therefore, in verse 20, He says this, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. As I said, this is not ancient history. This is happening today, right in front of our very own eyes. We feel obligated as men to live lawfully, don't we? We, we don't go out necessarily as men and women, even in the church, and try to break laws. We, we live lawfully, or we try to. And in that lawful living, we know that we would be accountable for that life that we're living. Whether it's to God or it's to the judge, we know that there's accountability involved in living lawfully. We want to do that. We are men and women. But at the same time that you and I want to live lawfully, if I see somebody violating the law, I'm quick to judge that person. If I see somebody struggling, I want to judge them. I want to say something about them. I, I want to gossip about it. I want to tell others about it. Look at so-and-so. Look at him. Look at her. And we start 
talking about other people, judging them. And you know what we do? When we run across our own problems, then we start defending them. I judge you, but I'll defend my faults because I've got a reason. And so we end up making and lowering the bar of righteousness when we do that. We lower the bar of righteousness. An example would be this. Today we're told that any form of sexual behavior is acceptable. In our society, it may be. We're told that. But according to the Bible, the only form of sexual behavior is found in the marriage covenant. Amen? That's the only acceptable form of sexual behavior is found in the marriage covenant. But today we're told differently. Today we're told that we can live together before we get married and have sexual relations, and it's acceptable. And you know what? It is. In our society, that's acceptable. It's okay. But in God's Word, it's not okay. So you would say, I've heard it said that it's all right. But God would say, but I say. So now we have a decision to make, don't we, as Christian men and women. Do I listen to what is acceptable and live by that code? Or do I go to God's Word and follow what He says about it and live by that code? Now it's getting thick, right? Now it's getting troublesome. You know, in our society today, we're told that that homosexuality is acceptable. And you know what? It is. But according to the Scripture, it's an abomination. It's not acceptable to God. But in our society, we've changed that. And so we see things transforming right here before our very eyes as we make laws upon laws upon laws to make ourselves look good, to make ourselves be righteous in our own eyes, to make ourselves acceptable to this God in heaven. We change things. Oh, you can do it with all kinds of avenues. You can do it with gambling. You can do it with gossiping. You can do it with any, any form of, of sin that you want to throw out there. We all try to make it okay. I'm going to judge you, but when I do it, I can defend it. How sad that is. But that's what we do. You know, that's been happening not just to you and me, but from us to Adam, from us to Eve. They blamed somebody else, didn't they? They had excuses. They had reasons. They didn't step up and take the responsibility. They didn't follow the law of God. They tried to make excuses for it. And that's exactly what's happening today in our society. You know, we do. Now, I'll grant you that we do have some barriers or some some stopping points when it comes to sexual behavior. Uh, we can accept uh, the homosexual, we can accept the, the, the living together and, and having sexual relations before marriage, but hey, when it comes to adultery, ooh, we frown on that. <laughs> we'll accept some of that sexual behavior, but we're not accepting that adultery stuff. That's terrible. That, that, that shouldn't be happening. You know, it's sad to say, but that's true, isn't it? And, and what about pedophilia? Now, we'll accept other people doing wrong things, but we won't accept a pedophile. I mean, because that's sexual behavior that's over the line. Amen? 
Isn't that sad what we've done in our society? God said the only sexual behavior that is acceptable is in the marriage covenant. Don't let the world pull you out of that. Don't let the world change or teach you what is acceptable and not acceptable. It is God's Word that we live by. It is God's Word that matters. You know, Americans don't feel like Pharisees. And praise the Lord, we're not. We've passed them up a long time ago. We're beating them at their own game. They didn't do the things that we do today. And we call it righteousness. And we call it being okay. And we call it being acceptable. The first thing the Pharisees did in not knowing it was that they relaxed the demands of the law. And they made it acceptable to do certain things as long as you didn't do that one thing. Amen? The second thing I want you to see is that they tried to make sin manageable. All right? They tried to make it where you could manage your sin. If you're here this morning and you have the idea of, for some reason, that your goodness is going to get you in heaven, then you fall under the term of a legalist. And, and, and you believe that by doing good things, by holding to law, by doing righteousness in, in your eyes, that God will allow you to uh, store up bitcoins of merit. A bitcoin. I can't hold it, I can't see it, but I know it's there, right? And I can put one of those in my imaginary pocket, and now I've got bitcoin. Now I've got merit with God. Now, when I go out and sin, as a Pharisee would, he would run and do a good deed, and the good deed would cancel out the sin. And that was their thinking. And that's men's thinking today. That they can earn and do enough goodness to get themselves into heaven. That somehow that, that would work out, that somehow they could be saved. But you know, if a legalist was really honest... He would throw in the towel because he would realize that there's no way that he could become good enough for God to let him in. But you know what? There's no legalists that want to throw in the towel. What they would rather do is change the rules of the game. They would rather make it possible to be good. They would rather make it possible to be righteous. They would rather take the teeth out of sin they would like to become less sinful. Therefore, they change the rules. It was here that Jesus comes on the scene and He finds this cancer spreading in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And today, if He showed up in the United States of America, He would probably become sick to His stomach as He saw the unrighteousness spreading in this land, and yet we call it righteousness. And we call it godliness. And we call it following God when we live opposed to what He says in His Word. Amen? They did not take sin seriously. They just thought they could manage it. So they had a false understanding of sin, therefore they had a false understanding of what righteousness is. The plan was to control their sin and be righteous enough for God. It backfired on them and it led them away from God instead of closer to God. 
Let me say that again. If you think your righteousness deeds are going to get you in heaven, it's actually leading you from heaven. Okay? Your eyes are darkened. Your spirit is darkened. You're going down a dark path. You're not being righteous whatsoever. You might call it that. You might feel like that. But open your eyes, my friend, and see that you cannot earn your way into the kingdom of God and call it righteousness. This doesn't work, and Jesus came to reveal that to us. Let me say this, an example of the Old Testament. The Sabbath day, God said to keep the Sabbath day holy and to honor it, right? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So what happens on the Sabbath day? Well, the people who were teaching that, people would say, well, how do I do that? How do I keep the Sabbath day holy? How do I honor the Sabbath day? Here comes the teacher, and he starts building a fence around the Sabbath day commandment. And he says, all of these things that I'm telling you, these laws that I'm making up, these laws that have been passed down to us, if we will keep these laws, then we'll keep that law in the middle. You won't break that law if you keep these laws. So they put up a fence around the Sabbath day. And they said, you can only go so many steps on the Sabbath day. You ever heard that? You can only do, uh, you can't cook dinner on the Sabbath day, but you can, you can uh, dish it out. Right? There were all kinds of laws that they started saying to protect the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Even though they might be violating the days before and the day after the Sabbath day, they weren't violating that Sabbath day by making all of these laws. So sin becomes rated. Sin, the Sabbath day, don't break it. All these laws we put around that to protect us from breaking that, we want to be good, we want to be righteous, and so we don't break these laws, therefore we won't break that law, and therefore sin becomes rated. Now there's greater sin and lesser sin. Alright? Now we, we have sins that are uh, despicable, and we have sins that are, uh, you know, okay. What happens then? Avoiding the greater sin becomes the priority. Well, I might be able to break one of these little sins out here, but as long as I don't break that sin in the middle, I'm going to be okay. As long as I don't violate that one. If I violate one of these out here, it's okay, but don't violate that one in the middle. And so they begin to avoid the greater sin, and it becomes the priority. And people then are worried about sins and not the sin. So, what happens there? They worry about what their hands doing more than what they worry about their hearts doing. As long as my hand doesn't violate, my heart's going to be okay. But my heart is tied to the Sabbath day and to honor it, to keep it holy. But I can go and get things taken care of around that in during the Sabbath day with my hands, but I don't worry about my heart. And what happens then is they stop thinking about what their heart thinks and what their heart feels towards God, and they put the emphasis on the sins of commission. You know what that is, right? Commission means you commit a sin. And they take their minds off of the sins of omission, the sins I omit. So, I'm going to keep the Sabbath day. I'm going to forget about my relationship with God and my, my closeness to Him by honoring Him on the Sabbath day. But I'm going to uh, not make these other sins and commit them 
but I've forgotten about the omission of the commandment to honor God. So now we've got ourselves in a pickle. We go around not doing things, but forgetting what we're supposed to do. You see that? So when you come to church, how many of you feel guilty if you miss church? Do you feel guilty because you missed church because somebody's going to miss you or because you missed your time with the Lord? See, there's a big difference here. So you commit sin uh, and you, you stop committing the sins around the commandment, but you omit the value of the commandment to honor God, to honor the Sabbath day. What's the commandments? Number one, love God with all of your heart. What's the second commandment Jesus said? He said, love your neighbor as yourself. But if I'm doing all these things with my hands around those commandments and omitting those commandments, what's happened to me? I have gotten off track. I've steered the wrong way. Oh, I'm not committing sin, but I am omitting my love for God and my love for you and your love for me. You see how that works? It's dangerous territory. It's happening all around us. It might even be happening in your life. And so our emphasis goes from the commission and we forget about the sins we are, or, or the things we are omitting, which is also a sin. Now, sin was and is canceled by merit. If you can do enough good and you can keep those sins around that commandment, Without, without violating them, then you get merit. You get value. You can counterbalance and compensate for the sin that's in your life. So sin just becomes doing... I mean, the escaping of sin becomes doing something good. And suddenly, your sin is now under your control. Now I can deal with my sin by just going and canceling it out by putting money in the plate. Or I can, I can cancel out my sin for Saturday night by coming up and singing in the choir Sunday morning. Right? You see how that works? It, it doesn't work. But that's the idea that we get, is that we can cancel out things in our life. And so the Pharisees were doing that, and Jesus comes along and they realize something about Him. Hey, they don't need, we don't need you. We don't need a Redeemer. We don't need a Savior. We have built a system where we handle the sin in our lives ourselves. And we become self-righteous. And we become glorified in our own eyes. And so Jesus uncovers that cancer and He deals with them appropriately. You know, today in America, most people that you ask, you can ask them this question, do you keep the Ten Commandments? And you know what you'll get? 99.9% .9 of the people will say, yeah, I keep the commandments. I keep the Ten Commandments, and you can say, well, what are they? They can't tell you what they are, but they can tell you they keep them. Amen? They can, can't tell you what the Ten Commandments are, but they can tell you that they keep those Ten Commandments. So, how can this be? Because they have the same view of sin as these Pharisees had. It's all superficial. It's all outer. It's on the outside of me, and I can wash that off by getting in that water. Woohoo! Man, I'm glad I got baptized, got all that sin off of me. Have you ever heard that before? I've heard that before. There's churches that practice that. That, that actually washes the sin off of you. We don't believe that. 
Okay? But some churches do. And so I, I can control my sin. It's all superficial. It's all on the outside of me. Because on the inside, I'm keeping commandments. And I'm doing good things. And I'm managing my sin. Now, if they, do, if they knew that they were wrong and got caught at something wrong, they would deny it. They wouldn't want to tell you and confess it. You know how I know? Because tax time in April comes around. Even the good old Christian boy is going to cheat on his taxes, right? We're not supposed to. We are not supposed to. But man, it happens all over the place. Oh, we might not tell them everything. We might withhold something. We might exaggerate something. But we're all going to cheat on our taxes. The Lord knows. He's fully aware of that. What about lying to somebody? Oh, it's just a little white lie. It's a lie. Now, I know she puts you on the spot when she says, how do I look? And if you don't like it, you're going to have to tell a little white lie, right? Unfortunate. <laughs> the two became one. But that's how it is. What about your temper at home? You come to church, you get in that parking lot, you put your church mask on, you come in here and you smile at everybody, give them a hug, and and then you go home and World War III breaks out. What's up with that? You see what I'm saying? We can all fool some of the people all of the time. But we can't fool God any of the time. So, what needs to be done? When I'm confronted with my sin, I need to deal with it. I, I need to know that I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough for my merit to cancel out my sin. Some people today see their sin as a disease that they catch instead of a choice that they make. In our Celebrate Recovery, uh, a lot of people say, well, I got a disease of, of gambling, or I got a disease of alcohol, or I got a disease of drug abuse. Man, you don't have a disease. You didn't catch that walking down the street. You made a choice. That's a choice. It was approached to me about uh, homosexuals. Are, 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 they, are they born that way? Right? A lot of people, you might be one, think, yeah, they are born that way. But according to the Bible, they're not born that way. Why? Because if they were born that way, it wouldn't be a sin. Are you sinning because you were born uh, with physical challenges? Are you sinning because you were born with mental retardation? You can't help that. So that's not a sin to be born that way. But the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. So how could that someone be born that way. You see what I'm saying? We want to say we got a disease instead of fessing up and saying it's a choice that I've made, therefore it is sin, and God needs to deal with that with me. I would rather deal with it myself. The cancer that Jesus brings out is this, that uh, it's the innocence of their sin is what their problem is. They don't know it. It's a moral cancer. It's a spiritual disease. It is at the very core of their life, rebellion against God. It's rebellion against God to think that you can earn it, that you can have it, that you can acquire it on your own. It burned in the Pharisees' hearts, and it burned in our hearts, and it burned in Adam and Eve's heart. And the only cure for it was Jesus Christ and Him alone. Amen. So how does man try to put out the fire? They make rules. They make guided behavior. 
They mix that with their good deeds and they think that will all cancel out their sin. And we found today that that's not the case. Where does all this come from? It comes from our rebellion against God. Jesus shows up with a thundering no. You cannot make rules. You cannot guide your behavior. You cannot mix your good deeds in with that. Righteousness is not an outward performance only. That's the easy part. Righteousness entails the soul, the spirit, the heart, the mind, the will of a man and a woman. Not just the outside appearance of righteousness. Jesus says it goes deeper than the outside. It's obedience. It's purity. It's the love of your heart down to the very core. God's Word is true. God's Word forbids illicit sexual behavior. The Bible says anything outside of the marriage covenant is illicit sexual behavior. But wait! Wait a minute. Jesus says it goes deeper than that. He says if you look at a woman and you lust for her, you've committed adultery. You've already done it in your heart. It goes deeper than lying in the bed with her. It goes deeper than that. And further than that, it goes to the fact that it's your thought of doing it. It's your thought and idea of accomplishing that. Jesus takes it further and deeper and farther than any Pharisee ever thought about. It's just committing the act. If you don't commit the act, you're scot-free. Jesus says no. It's the lust for her. Yes, it's the lying with her. Yes, it requires your word. The law of God requires your word to be your bond. Amen? If I read God's word and I'm not sure, if I can't trust it, if I don't think it's true, then why would I expect somebody to take my word? God's word is true, therefore my word as a Christian must be true. It must be right. It must be righteous. So when you speak to one another, don't tell lies, Paul tells us. Don't, don't fib, don't gossip, don't do things against people. Your word is your bond. Live like that. God's word is true, so my word must be true as well. If not, it's not only forbidding you to take life, God's law, doesn't just forbid you to take life. Here's what it does. It requires you to love that life you want to take. It requires you to care for that person that you're angry about. Jesus said, love your enemies, not hate your enemies. You see, it goes further than that. You say, well, Brother Clay, you don't know what they did to me. It doesn't matter what they did to you. He didn't put that in parentheses, except for the bad people that did something to you. He said, love them. Love your enemies. And that's what we are required to do. Jesus says, to understand righteousness, you first must understand sin. That is why we come together and worship Him here on Sunday mornings. Our sin is too great for us to handle. And we come and bring it before Christ and He covers us with His righteousness, with His blood, the forgiveness of our sin. I read a little story about a, a, a man who was a pastor in a church and he saw two Mormon missionaries coming to his front door. And so he 
let them come in and they begin to talk to him about the Mormon church and how they wanted him to become a part of that. And he listened to them for a minute and then he said, listen, boys, I can't do that. They said, why? He said, because you don't have enough righteousness to cover my sin. And they got offended a little bit because they thought that he said they weren't righteous. And he said, no, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. In order for me to become a Mormon, you want me to do that so that by joining your church and fulfilling the good deeds of your church, it can cover my sin. And he said, I'm telling you, you don't have enough righteousness in your church to cover my sin. And they didn't understand. And they said, you mean, you think we're unrighteous? And he said, no. And then they said, you mean you think that we don't have enough righteousness to cover our sin? And he said, precisely. You don't have enough righteousness to cover your sin. And the boys turned around and left. Do you see the point there? You think that you can do things and omit the command but keep the rules around it? And you can call that righteousness? No, you can't. Because you've omitted the very thing that God began with at that point of telling you the command. You have heard it said. That's why I gave this a title. Have you heard? Have you heard what people are saying is righteous today? Have you heard that? But God says this. Which one will you live by today? Jesus is our only hope. Jesus' teaching makes it clear that He is the only Savior that we'll ever have or ever need. Jesus was a teacher of righteousness, but first He was a preacher of sin. He showed us what sin is, and He helped us to understand it, so then in turn we could understand what righteousness is. Today, if you've understood all of that, then you know you need a Redeemer. You know you need a Savior because there's not enough righteousness in this room to cover your sin. It doesn't happen that way. You can't join this church and do enough good things to cover the sin that is in your life. You know you need a Savior. And you know this morning where you can find Him. Right here in this place. This is an altar. We can find Jesus right here. You can find Him in the pew where you're sitting. The problem with staying in the pew is Jesus said, unless you confess Me before men, I won't confess you before My heavenly Father. You've got to get up out of that pew. You've got to come down here and you've got to turn around and tell this church that I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God. Hey, we all had to do it. Okay, it was tough. It was tough going down and letting people know that I'm a sinner. Ho, 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 Clay, you were a sinner, really? Come on, not you. You better believe it. I still sin today. But I'm not going to get my own righteousness by keeping the law. I'm going to turn to Christ and His righteousness alone. Jesus saves. Sin destroys. Jesus leads us to life. He came and taught these people the Sermon on the Mount. This morning He's teaching you that you can have a life worth living. 
You can have that, and you will have that if you come to Him. You must have that life to come to heaven. Will you surrender your heart to Him today? Will you allow Jesus to save you from your sin? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us all overcome the need for self, the need for good, the need for righteousness on our own. Father, you've shown this morning that that's impossible to find within ourselves. In fact, it leads us farther away from you. Help me to surrender to you today. Help a person in this congregation surrender their heart to you today, maybe for the first time. Help a long-standing Christian, a member of this church for years, find you for real this morning. Let your works be done. Let your glory be shown. Let your grace flood this room right now. Let your Holy Spirit work. Father, change someone's lives or all of our lives, even in this place today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.